the Bible's not going to give you a specific verse that says whether or not you should take that job. Now, I want to be clear, the Bible speaks to all of life. It shows us who God is and what kind of people he calls us to be. So making a move from those realities, the Bible does give us wisdom to make those kind of life decisions so that we're not completely left on our own to say, well, I don't know, should I take this job? Should I not take this job? Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Matthew Harmon. Matthew serves as professor of New Testament studies at Grace Theological Seminary in Winona Lake, Indiana. He was previously on staff with Crew for eight years and is the author of several books, including Asking the Right Questions, a practical guide to understanding and applying the Bible from Crossway. Today, Matthew and I discuss eight simple questions to ask when studying the Bible, questions that help us get at the true meaning of Scripture and how to apply it to our lives today. He explains why all Christians, not just those with a seminary degree, can study the Bible deeply for themselves. He highlights what Jesus himself teaches us about how to rightly read Scripture and explores how to move from understanding to application without making the Bible all about us. Let's get started. Matt, thank you so much for joining me on the Crossway Podcast today. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So you and your book lay out eight simple questions that you say will help us to understand and then to apply scripture to our lives in a very straightforward way. And I wonder if one question that people might immediately have is, is it really that easy? Is it really just eight questions and then I can understand and apply the Bible? Let me give a qualified yes. I mean, I, I want to say that the, those eight questions, I think, serve as a foundation that you can use in any passage and get to the heart of why God gave us Scripture. So, so for example, the, the four questions that deal with how to understand the Bible. Uh, what do we learn about God? What do we learn about people? What do we learn about relating to God? And what do we learn about relating to people? And so those four questions really come out of uh, Matthew 22, where someone asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says something to the effect of, on these two commandments rest all the law and the prophets. So what, what I see Jesus saying there is every passage of Scripture, no matter where you're at in the Bible, is given to us to in some way help us love God and love others. And so if you have that framework you can approach any passage, whether you're in the middle of Leviticus and reading through very, uh, to us, seemingly strange regulations about how you should treat um, certain different types of people and what clothes you should wear, what you should put in your field, what you shouldn't put, your, put in your field. We can, we can get lost in the details, but if, if you step back and look at the larger picture and say, God gave me this passage to help me love him and to love my neighbor. So what am I learning about God? And what am I learning about people? And then how should I relate to, to God? And how should I relate to other people? Can, can form a, a framework for us so that even if we don't understand all the details or the particulars, we can walk away saying, this has shown me something about who God is and about how I should relate to him. So that's why my qualified yes is there. It's not this, I, I won't claim it will give you an exhaustive knowledge of a passage, but I think that it, based on what Jesus himself says, 
it gives us a good starting point to say, God gave me this passage to help me love him and to love other people. So if I start with that, and I come away with knowing more about who God is and how I should relate to him and how I should relate to other people, you've gotten at the heart of what God wants you to get from the passages of Scripture. Yeah, that's so, that is so helpful, and that kind of framing it along that first set of questions, the, the understanding questions, is, is really helpful. I wonder, you are a professor of New Testament, and you also worked with crew for a number of years uh, with college students, leading Bible studies, discipling them. Uh, what are some of the most common, I don't know, objections that you've heard from normal Christians when it comes to their ability to understand the Bible and apply it? Some of the most common include this impression that you have to, to have a Bible degree to really understand mm. the Bible, or you have to know the original languages. And, and I think oftentimes this actually is the result of people sitting under preaching or teaching where, although there wasn't the intention to give this idea, by the way that the scriptures are taught, it can almost feel like well, if you don't know the Greek and the Hebrew, if you don't have the understanding of the cultural backgrounds and that sort of stuff, you really can't read the Bible. And so a steady exposure to that kind of teaching actually, instead of helping people understand the Bible, can actually discourage people from opening the text themselves, because they think, well, I don't have the training. Like I've never read these ancient Jewish authors like Josephus or Philo, so how could I ever understand the Bible? And, and again, I make clear, like, I'm not against theological education. I yeah. mean, I, I'm a professor at a at a school that offers that, so I, I want people to come and study and that sort of thing. But I think that there can be this objection of, well, I, I don't have the formalized training, and that's the only way you can really understand the Bible is to have that kind of advanced training. So that's one of the one of the more common objections that I get. Uh, another is that um, the the whole interpretive uh, pluralism, meaning. Well, that's just your interpretation, and yeah. so that's my interpretation. That's your interpretation. So, I feel like that comes up a lot in small group context or something where no one really wants to disagree with anyone else, and so you kind of yes. just offer your own version of something that uh, that maybe doesn't. Uh, you, you don't want to get into the conflict sometimes. Absolutely, absolutely. And so people walk away from that saying, "Well, if 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 Jimmy thinks that it means that, and I think it means something different, and Sally thinks it means something different, like there's just sort of this throw up your arms and go, well, I guess that's.'" You know, uh, what, what, how are we supposed to even adjudicate between those claims? Like, how are we supposed to figure out, is that really what the passage means? And, and can the passage mean anything I want it to mean? Are there any sort of restrictions or, or checks or boundaries that tell us that, no, the passage really can't mean that? And because it says here in this part of the passage this, or because of this other piece of Scripture that helps us understand it. So I, I think those are some of the common frustrations, I mm. think, that I see uh, among uh, both people in the church and even people in the classroom, students in the classroom, having come out of that experience of wanting to understand and apply the Bible, but having those kind of frustrating experiences that serve as a discouragement. And then it only gets compounded by the fact that they're constantly told, you should be reading your Bible, <laughs> which is true, and we should be encouraging people to read their Bible. But that ends up being even more frustrating because they think, well, I want to, but I I, I'm lost, like I don't even know where to begin, or I get so frustrated when I hear one person say a passage means this, and another person says it means the exact opposite, so what do I do with that? Yeah, yeah. Well, and you, you write that uh, the questions we ask when we read the Bible largely determine how we understand and apply it. And I wonder, can you unpack that a little bit? What do you mean that 
the questions that we ask when we come to it determine how we understand it. And sure. Why. Well, I think that um, that's connected with our expectations of what kind of book the Bible is, meaning that if we go to the Bible and expect it to have detailed instruction for us on how to make specific life decisions, we're going to find ourselves frustrated, meaning the Bible's not going to give you a specific verse that says whether or not you should take that job, or whether or not you should date that person, or whether you should move to that location. There, there's no chapter and verse that's going to give you the direct, yes, you should do that, or no, you shouldn't do that. Now, I want to be clear, the Bible speaks to all of life. It provides a framework, it provides a worldview, it provides instruction, it most importantly shows us who God is and what kind of people he calls us to be. So making a move from those uh, realities, the Bible does give us wisdom to make those kind of life decisions so that we're not completely left on our own to say, well, I don't know, should I take this job, should I not take this job? Well, the Bible does give you wisdom in how to assess that kind of decision, what sort of factors should play into a, a decision like that. But it's not going to give you the specific um, you know, answer maybe that you're looking for. But I think we've all probably been in, a, again, a small group context or a Sunday school context or just had a friend who, who maybe did think that the Bible gave them some specific, you know, they were wrestling with a, a difficult life decision, whether it was a job or who to date or... And then they, that morning in their Bible study, read this verse where it said, you should, you know, uh, and Moses led the Israelites east or something. And, it, and it's like, oh, I, maybe I should take that job out on the east coast. Sure. Uh, so what do you think about that kind of a, a way of reading scripture? I think that it is certainly possible that God can use any variety of ways to guide and direct us. Um, and I do think that there are clearly times where, and I think many believers have this experience, where they're, they're going through a situation and they hear a, a sermon a, or they're in a Bible study that has a passage where it's, it seems to directly connect with whatever issue they're wrestling with. And through the process of, of reading the passage, of, of thinking about it, reflecting on it, praying on it, it does seem like the Lord will use that to move a person in a direction. So uh, I certainly believe that that happens. But I certainly think as well that is usually the culmination of a series of factors that the Lord has been using in that person's life to move them in a certain direction, whether it's uh, a conversation they had with a fellow believer the day before, whether it's something specifically they've been praying about, or other factors that are involved in that. So I think um, as part of that larger picture, yeah, certainly God can do that. But I get, I get a little nervous if someone is basing an entire decision based on something like that, where it's, um, well... Uh, this one word in this passage seems to directly answer what I was looking for. Like, okay, well, and, and this is part of where I think one of the dangers we face in our uh, Western culture is we, we tend to be so individualistic that we have this mindset that it is just me and Jesus and the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so even in those kinds of situations where a person is really wrestling through a decision or something like that, I always want to encourage them, are you seeking wise counsel from fellow believers? Do you have people in your life that you can bounce things off of and say, 
I'm thinking the Lord might be moving me in this direction, or I'm not sure. Will you pray with me? Will you help me process this uh, using your own experience and biblical wisdom to think through this? So that can also be another check, I think, in some of that um, uh, decision-making process that can hopefully uh, avoid some of the, the the worst uses of that kind of approach. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. This kind of goes back to something you mentioned early on. Uh, you, you mentioned that Jesus has some things to teach us about how to read the Bible, which I think maybe to some people uh, might strike them as a little bit uh, surprising. Uh, what do you mean by that? What What is it that we can learn from Jesus himself that helps us to know how to read our Bibles? One of the passages that uh, fascinates me the most in the Gospels is Luke 24, where it's Luke's account of the resurrection. And one of his emphases in that whole chapter is that the risen Jesus tells his followers how to read the Bible. So you have the story of him appearing to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they're explaining to Jesus, who they don't recognize, uh, all that's happened. And Jesus has this very pointed don't you get all that all that that all scripture had to be fulfilled and then and then the text says that beginning with Moses he explained to them from the scriptures all these passages all, all, all these ideas about what the Christ had to suffer and they still don't get it that it's Jesus there so when they have the aha moment and he disappears from them they return back to Jerusalem that very night all these disciples are gathered together Jesus appears again and in Luke's account what he does is he says that part of what Jesus does there is to explain how they're to read the Bible. And so he, he gives this beautiful summary of, uh, of what the Old Testament message really is. Basically, he says, all the scriptures, uh, the law and the prophets and the writings had to be fulfilled in me. And then he says, thus it is written, the Christ should suffer, die, and rise from the dead, and uh, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be announced to the ends of the earth. So that's basically Jesus' summary of the Old Testament. He's like, if you want to know what the Old Testament is about, it's about this. It's about the arrival of the Messiah, his death, his resurrection, and the announcement of the good news to the ends of the earth. So Jesus himself is saying, that's your framework. That's your rubric, really, for reading the entirety of the Old Testament, so that in some way, every passage of the Old Testament connects to that narrative about the Messiah, about the announcement of the good news to the ends of the earth. Now, granted, some passages much more clearly and directly make that connection for you. Others take a little bit more work to see the connection, to be sure. But um, that's one of the most important passages, I think, for reading the Bible, uh, is Luke 24. Another key passage is in John chapter 5, where Jesus is rebuking the religious leaders of his day, and he says to them, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have life, and they point to me. And basically his point is, you've missed it. Mm. Here are these experts in the Old Testament, in Old Testament scriptures, and he's saying, you're experts in these, and you've missed the main point because I'm standing right in front of you, and you can't see it. So I think that if we're going to take seriously that Jesus has things to say about how we're to read the Bible, I think those are some of the passages we have to start with. And then, of course, the apostles in the New Testament are their sort of, are, are Jesus-authorized interpreters, so that 
they continue to show us how to interpret the Old Testament, how to read the Bible in a way that points to Christ. Mm. Yeah, as you think about that, are there any uh, guidelines that you would uh, kind of offer to the, the average Christian for doing that well? I think maybe all of us can think of examples where it seems like the, the interpretation gets a little fanciful or you're kind of finding Jesus around every bush. Well, I think that you always want to... Uh, any attempt you make to make that connection, especially from the Old Testament, you always want to make sure that you're kind of checking it against the New Testament to make sure you're consistent with what the New Testament directly teaches us about Christ, about the work of the gospel. I think beyond that, that one of the most helpful sort of tools that I've used in my own study of Scripture is recognizing that the New Testament presents Jesus as our ultimate prophet, priest, and king. He is the ultimate embodiment of those realities. So that anytime you read the Old Testament and you see one of those kinds of figures, a prophet, a priest, or a king, I think paying attention to what are we learning about that king? And any way that he fails, what that shows is the need for a king who will not fail, who will perfectly obey in that area. And any success that the king has is a shadow of the even greater success that Jesus as our ultimate king has through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And so doing the same thing with the prophet and the priest. And that gets you a long way in the historical books in the Old Testament, um, recognizing from the New Testament that Jesus is uh, described to us as the temple. He is the embodiment of God's presence. So anytime you, you see references to the temple in the Old Testament, you should be thinking forward to this is in some way pointing forward to God's presence with us in the person of Jesus. Um, in, in key events like the Exodus, you know, the Old Testament itself uses the original Exodus as a pattern of what the work of Christ is going to be eventually. So just having some of those initial categories mm. can really start to open up your eyes to see that um, seeing how a passage points to Jesus, it may not be as challenging as you might think if you've got some good sort of categories in place. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, be taking a step back a little bit, uh, one of the things that you emphasize in the book that maybe people have heard before is that the Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us. Why is that distinction important? Yeah, I think that it is too easy, I think, sometimes to... Uh, to make the mistake that you think that God's Word is directly written to us. Meaning, and what I'm trying to get at in that distinction is to say, we are not Israelites wandering with Moses in the wilderness. We are not um, subjects under David's kingdom. We are not uh, Jews living in exile in Babylon. We're not first century Jews listening to Jesus preach on the streets of Capernaum. We're not first century Philippians or Romans or Galatians or anyone like that. So that it's trying to take seriously that when God inspired the human author to write that particular book of the Bible, it was addressed to a particular group of human beings at a particular point in human history. So it's, it's designed to help us give a little bit of a, a distance before we then say, but wait a minute, this is God's word, it is inspired and God gave it for our instruction, for our encouragement, for to, to build hope and perseverance. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 15, 4, where he talks about that Scripture was written 
for us, so that even as you read the Old Testament, even if you don't have a drop of Jewish blood in your body, those are your scriptures. If you're a follower of Jesus, that those are for you, so that you have been given something by God to help you see more clearly who God is and how you should live as his people, even though you live thousands of years removed from the experience of the Israelites, even though you live under a different covenant than the Israelites did. And really, that piece of it is is one of the best benefits of recognizing that, because if you, if you don't, and, and honestly, all of us have at some level this understanding, right? So you're reading through Leviticus, and I think very few Christians think, I should be sacrificing birds mm. as a step of obedience to God. They, they don't do that. Why? Well, at some level they understand, yeah, that's not written directly to me. I'm not an Israelite uh, in the wilderness with Moses, and I'm not under, under that covenant anymore. And so there's still something to learn about who God is, about what he values, about his character, about his conduct, about who human beings are, our sinfulness, our, our frailties, our tendencies. And from that to say, God has a message for me through this text, even though it wasn't written directly to me. And that gets back to the point that you made earlier about the importance of asking the right questions and not the wrong questions that maybe don't reflect that distinction that is important to keep in mind. Yeah, I mean, I think in one sense, any type of literature, if you don't understand what kind of literature it is and you go to it with the wrong set of questions and the wrong set of expectations, you're going to get either really bad answers or you're going to experience deep frustration. I mean, if, if I go to the ESPN website to read an article about um, college football, I should not expect that to give me any help in how to prepare a healthy meal for my family tonight. Mm. That's not what the purpose is. But if I come to it with this wrong set of questions, this wrong set of expectations, I'm going to either get really bad answers or I'm going to get frustrated. So we have to take our cues from the Bible itself, which is why I think that passage out of Matthew 22 is so important about Jesus saying this is the, the greatest commandment, loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor as yourself. And uh, Luke 24 of him saying all of Scripture in some way points back to who I am and what I'm going to accomplish through the gospel. Hmm. Have you ever wondered why God chose to reveal himself to us through this, uh, not just the written word, but through written words, as you're saying now, that were delivered to specific people at a certain time? I'm not really sure what the alternative would have been, but I wonder if people sometimes can feel a little bit like, ah, that's, I just wish he would tell me what I should do, what I should believe, just give me a list, instead of making me almost decode these things a little bit from all these ancient cultures. And uh, Have you ever wondered that? Yeah, and I think that um, the, the most satisfying answer that, that I've come to is uh, God wants to build his relationship with you. He doesn't want to just give you a set of rules or even a set of principles or even a, a set of ideas. He wants you to relate to him. And so um, I think that as part of that, by him not maybe conforming to what we might think we want or would be best if he just kind of, just give us the whole list. Um, instead, that uh, it, it forces us to trust him. It forces us to 
use wisdom, and it forces us to rely on fellow believers around us as well. One of the passages that I love sharing with my students is from Deuteronomy 29, 29. And um, it, it, it basically says, um, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. So it's like God is saying, there's only so far that you'll ever be able to understand who I am and what, and, and what I'm doing in the world and all of that. But it goes on to say, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we should obey them. So that it, it brings together beautifully this sense of God has said, there are things that you will never understand. And, and that makes sense just because if, if God is who he says he is in scripture, he's so far beyond us. How could we ever possibly fully understand? Even if he tried to explain it to us, it's, it, it would be beyond our brains to be able to, to comprehend and then, but it goes on to say, but I've revealed enough that you should trust me and you should obey me. You should walk faithfully with me. Yeah, yeah. So we've talked a little bit about this, this, this breakdown uh, of understanding God versus applying or understanding the Bible versus applying the Bible. And, and you kind of walk through those four questions under the understanding the Bible sure. uh, section. Uh, what would be the four questions that you would then uh encourage us to use as we seek to apply the Bible to our lives? Yeah, so I think that, um, before I give the four questions, let me just give a brief. Um, I think when people think about the topic of application, the first thing that they gravitate towards is, okay, what do I do? They think about a specific sort of tangible action. Right, like what is my, how does my life look different tomorrow is often something Correct. I've heard. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that's a good thing to wrestle with, absolutely. But I think that's too narrow. Meaning that when the Bible, I think, uh, talks about or, or presents us with this idea of applying Scripture to our lives, we have to think of it more holistically. So that's why I have four questions. The first is, what does God want me to understand? Second is, what does God want me to believe? The third one is, what does God want me to desire? And the fourth is, what does God want me to do? So let me just briefly unpack each of those questions. Um, when it comes to the idea of what does God want me to understand, this is where I think of the just the basic sort of giving us thought structures of, and, and, and reforming our sort of biblical worldview, uh, understanding that God is the creator, that we are accountable to him, those sorts of things. What do we need to understand about God, about the world around us, etc.? So that's the foundation for the second question, which is, what does God want me to believe? And this can be a subtle distinction that can be hard to grab onto, but that distinction is trying to get at this idea that we all have a set of knowledge, but when it comes to believe, we're talking about functionally, it's shaping how we actually live. For example, if you were given a, a quiz, do you believe that God is sovereign? Sure, yeah, absolutely. True, God is sovereign. Okay, great. So when you're sitting in traffic and you're late to an appointment and there's a backup that you can't even see why there's some sort of traffic backup and you're experiencing that frustration and that that almost road rage of, oh, I can't believe this, I'm going to be late, I'm getting angry, I'm getting frustrated. You can feel the, 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 the anger and the frustration sort of boiling up inside of you and you're like, oh God, don't you know I have to get to that appointment? It's really important. Well, you're grumbling against the sovereignty of God. And so in that moment, you don't functionally believe God's sovereignty. 
you, you might understand it. You might be able to, to write a paragraph about God's sovereignty and quote scripture verses, but in the moment, you're not functionally believing that because you're allowing your anger and your frustration to, in essence, say, God, if you just let me take over things for like two minutes, I could fix all this and we could just get on with life, right? <laughs> I could so, do a better job right exactly. now. Exactly. So you, you're not functionally believing that, that God is sovereign in that moment. So that distinction is trying to get you to move from the, the understanding to the, I'm putting my trust and my confidence in that. Then the third question when it comes to uh, application of what does God want me to desire? The, the great uh, American pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards liked to talk about the affections, the, the sort of well or the, the spring from which all of our desires, our inclinations come from. And so this question is trying to get at that idea of what is it that God wants me to love, to desire, to long for, or not to love, not to long for. And for some people, that can be a little scary depending on their background, because some people have been brought up in a, in a context where emotions are all bad. You know, like emotions are completely untrustworthy. Well, there can be an emotionalism that is bad, but the Bible all over the place engages our emotions. Like you read the Psalms, and if you don't have some sort of emotional reaction, response to engagement with that, you're not reading them rightly. <laughs> um, you know, the, the Bible does tell us how we should feel, the sort of emotions and the desires that we should have. And so trying to tap into this, this notion that there are things that God wants me to, to love and to desire and long for, and there are things that God wants me to not love and not long for. So often a passage will point us in that direction. And then from all of that foundation comes the last question of, Okay, so what do I do? So how does this tangibly affect actions that I'm going to take today, this week, this month, etc.? And so it's my hope that that more holistic approach to application is uh, faithful to what the Bible really talks about, about transforming us so that we more clearly reflect Christ, that the kind of transformation that we want to see is not just external behavior conformity. Uh, I fear that too many of our churches have people in the pews who've figured out how to conform their external behavior to certain Christian standards, but their hearts, their minds, their desires are not transformed at all. So they act one way around their Christian friends or family, that sort of thing, and then you get them away from that, and then suddenly their true desires and heart are revealed as they have opportunity. And so trying to reflect this holistic transformation that I think is really what in theology we just simply refer to as sanctification, growing in godliness. And even that term godliness is an orientation of life that is oriented towards God and works itself out in our thoughts, our actions, our inclinations, our beliefs, our attitudes, etc. Mm. Yeah, and I love that that conception of application and those four questions, they really reflect a view of the human that is more fully orbed than just what am I doing? Correct. What are my physical actions? What are my words and I'm speaking? But it, you know, those all flow out of something. They flow out of our, our thoughts and our inclinations and, and all that. Yeah, and I and, uh, one of the passages that I, that I love to come back to in, in thinking about this whole area is uh, in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, where you have God's work and our responsibility put right next to each other. So in Philippians 2, 12, Paul talks about how he commands the Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
It's like, okay, that's our responsibility. We're supposed to work out what God has worked in. And then the next line in verse 13 is, for God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So this is part of the beautiful nature of the new covenant that God had promised in Ezekiel 36 and other texts that in the new covenant, God would put his spirit inside of us and give us the desire to obey and the power to obey, which that should be so liberating and so encouraging because I know there are times, I have times often where I think, I know what the right thing to think or to do or to believe is right now, but I don't want to. I, I don't have a desire to. And to know that we can pray and say, God, I believe that you can give me the desire to obey and then the power to actually step out in faith and obey you. One of the examples I use is, because I think we've probably often had this experience, is um, you know, the New Testament regularly calls us to love one another, love our fellow believers. And if we spend any significant amount of time in the church, you end up being around some people who are not the most easily loved, if you can put it nicely, <laughs> that's, right? That's putting it very nicely. <laughs> that there's some really hard people to love, and they may not just be in the church, they might be in our home, they might be in our neighborhood, they might be at our workplace, they might be at our school. And the beauty of that is to be able to say, okay, God, there is nothing in that person that draws me to them, that makes me want to love them. And in fact, they're doing things maybe even to push me away and to reject the kind of love that I want to show them. But I believe that you can give me both desire and the power to love them because it's not going to be me doing it. It's going to be Christ living in and through us by his spirit to do that. And that is so encouraging because often we face those situations where we think, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what's right here. I don't want to. Mm. And if we're just stuck there, then um, that's a miserable place to live. But when we, can, when we know that God says, I will give you the desire, I will give you the power, just ask. I am working in your life. I am glad. And it says at the end of that verse, for his good pleasure. So, it's, so God delights to give you the desire to obey him and the power to obey him, even in circumstances where your natural inclinations are in the other direction. So what would you say to someone who's listening right now and even after uh, hearing you talk today still feels a little bit intimidated by the Bible? They still feel like, I just don't know if I can open this up and really understand it by myself. I, I feel like uh, I'm just going to mess it up or I, I just can't. I'm not smart enough for it. What, what would you say to that person right now? Well, I would say I would probably want to start by saying uh, I want to affirm your caution, meaning that um, we should be reading the Bible with other people. We should be um, not just trying to go it fully on our own. At the same time, though, I would say, if you are a follower of Jesus, uh, 1 Corinthians 2 talks about the fact that he's given us the mind of Christ. That's part of what God has already given you as one of his children, is the mind of Christ. He's given you the spirit who dwells in you, the same spirit who inspired people like Paul and Moses and Isaiah to write those biblical books, that same spirit lives inside of you to empower you to understand what the Bible says. And so with that sort of foundation, I would say that when you start reading the Bible, if you have a, a heart that says, God, I want to understand who you are. I want to understand what it means to love you and to love others well. 
I am confident that God will use his word to reveal himself in the scriptures. Now, I might say there are some more strategic places in the Bible to start than other places. I might not send a person directly to Leviticus, but I might send them directly to John and say, just start with John and see all that you're all that you're able to learn and, and to grow in your understanding of who God is and what he's done for us. And as, as one more piece of that, I would say you're probably better off to, to read larger chunks. Don't just pick one verse and then say, okay, I'm out of here. I've got my little one little nugget of biblical input. Uh, oftentimes reading a whole chapter is so much more beneficial to see the larger picture and uh, to make sure that you're not misunderstanding and pulling one verse out of its context and thinking that it says something that the larger surrounding context clearly makes it evident that it's not mm. saying that. Mm. Yeah. Do you find that it's helpful to uh, study the Bible with a, a pen and a piece of paper, or do you use some kind of journaling Bible? Or kind of what's your, what's your Bible study setup look like? I'm not talking about when you're preparing to teach a class or preach a sermon, but like, what does a, a run-of-the-mill daily devotional time look like for you? Yeah, so um, I go back and forth at times between journaling and, um, and, and writing and, and other times not, um, but having those questions that I've put in, in the book as my sort of backdrop, that's always the filter through which I'm, I'm, I'm reading everything when it comes to my Bible intake. And so I try to be reading out of both the Old Testament and the New Testament at the same time. So uh, there are a number of Bible reading plans that are out there that can help you customize what's best for you. And so some of it just becomes trial and error, I think, for people, right? It becomes a, it does it work better for me to just try to read through, to say, okay, this month I'm going to read Philippians, you know, it's four chapters, but I'm going to read a chapter each day, and then when I get to the fifth day, I'm going to go right back to chapter one. I'm just going to keep reading it over and over and just sort of live in the world of Philippians for a month. And I think that can be super, super helpful. But it can also be helpful to take larger chunks and say, I'm going to sit down for 45 minutes and just read through a gospel account, the whole thing. You can sit down and read through the gospel of Mark in 45 minutes, even if you're on the slower end in terms of reading speed. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just when you when you have that sort of more extended, you start to see connections that emerge from that you would be harder pressed to see if you're just, well, I read one chapter today, and then tomorrow I'm going to read the next chapter. And starting simple, I think, can be a good thing too. I, I know of a person who... Um, has used my book uh, in terms of, you know, the, there's the four questions of uh, we've talked about for understanding. And she felt a little bit like that might be a little bit too much to start with in terms of reading through uh, a book of the Bible. So she's just started with the question, what do I learn about God? And she read through Deuteronomy and just kept a running list of what she learned about God. And by the end, she had filled pages upon pages in a journal of different things she was seeing about who God was. And so even with something as simple as that, that can be uh, so encouraging, so helpful, so that, you know, what, what, I, what I don't want people to walk away with is saying, uh, 
well, I have to use all eight questions every time I read the Bible. And so it becomes this like formula or it becomes this like overwhelming process. Like, no, just even just pick one. Like, what am I learning about God? And make note of what you're seeing there. And make use of, I, I really encourage people, make use of the resources. There's never been a time in human history where there's been more resources available to help you read, understand, and apply the Bible. We here in in the United States especially, there is no excuse in terms of lack of resources. Now, there are parts of the world where there, those resources are much more limited and, and more challenging. But uh, one of the products that that uh, that I love that uh, that Crossway has put out is the are those are the different forms of the journaling uh, of the journals for for scripture. So the um, you know you have the the Bibles themselves that have like the side columns on the edges where you can make notes. Um, and the little the little scripture booklets now that, Cro- that Crossway has, where it's got the the text of the scripture on one page, and then a full blank lined page on the on the facing page to make notes and that sort of thing. Those are super super helpful to be able to dive in to the Bible, and so uh, make 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 use of these resources. They are out there, um, and uh, do it with other people. Not that you don't read the Bible by yourself, that's a good discipline to be in, but look for opportunities to be in the Bible with fellow believers, because even people who have studied the scriptures and taught the scriptures for years, I mean, I have the privilege of teaching in the local church as well as in uh, in the seminary and in the Bible and in, in, in the college, and it's I mean, I wrote a commentary on Philippians. I spent five years of my life poring over that letter. And I'll teach Philippians in a Sunday school class or in a, in a college classroom, and students will either ask a question or they'll, they'll, they'll point something out in the text that I think, I think I've seen that before, but I've never really appreciated how significant that is mm. or that I've never really put that piece with this other piece. And so... If if someone who who has studied a Bible in uh, a book of the Bible in depth for five years, pouring over the Greek text and all sorts of scholarship, and there's still things that uh, a freshman in college can say, Doctor Harmon, what do you think about this this here, and and do you see that this is is happening here? And I think, wow, I, I guess I didn't really notice that mm. before, but that's legitimately there. You're not yeah. just making something up; like that's legitimately there. And I think what comes to mind when that happens is there's a passage in Matthew 13, 52, where Jesus describes uh, when a scribe becomes a disciple of the kingdom. So the scribes were these experts in the Old Testament law. He's like the master of a house who pulls out of his treasures both old things and new things. It's this beautiful picture of being able to look in the scriptures and say, I've seen that before. And here's these new things that are legitimately there that maybe I've noticed but not really put them together. And to be able to to have that as a characterization of your life, to be able to say, you can read Scripture and see things that you've always seen and see things in a fresh light maybe that you've never seen before. That should be an encouragement to anyone who's reading the Bible. And when I when I hear maybe a student who say, well, yeah, I've read Philippians, and I think, okay, yeah, you've read it once, twice, ten times, but like, have you read it 
and reflected on it, meditated on it, chewed on it? Have you talked with other believers about it? And then they get into a class where they're forced to do that. They go, oh my gosh, there's so much more here than I ever imagined. And I thought when I first started this class, it's like, yeah, I have a good grasp on Philippians. And you're like, yeah, you know, maybe about an inch deep of what's in Philippians. There's a whole lot more there. Mm, yeah, yeah. Now that's such a good encouraging word for us as we think about our Bibles and they can sometimes just be sitting on our shelf and kind of feel we're so used to them. We just see them all the time, but there are depths there that we can jump into and uh, God will use his spirit to teach us things about himself. And Absolutely. About ourselves. Thank you, Matt, so much for taking the time today to, to talk with us. It's my pleasure. That was Matthew Harmon on eight simple questions to ask when studying the Bible. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Asking the Right Questions, a practical guide to understanding and applying the Bible, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.